Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for over 2,000 years. I'm joined this week again with Dr. Richard Buzzichelli, lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy, and we're continuing our discussion on uh, the encyclical Humani Vitae. Uh, we just, uh, just yesterday, July 25th, was the uh, 50th anniversary of the document, and so you'll find uh, many articles, topics online, and so we're bringing that topic to our discussion today. And so last week we talked a little bit about the historical context and the cultural kind of milieu happening around the time of Humani Vitae, some of the, the reactions uh, from members of within the church, the Charles Curran affair a bit. Um, but this week what we want to do is we're going to focus on the encyclical itself. While being a really short document, especially if you're used to, you know, John Paul II's encyclicals or exhortations, uh, Humani Vitae is relatively short. And so, Dr. Bruce Kelly, why don't you get us started? And maybe, you know, to, to, to begin this, it's, I find it interesting that he begins the encyclical letter discussing the competency of the magisterium. Uh, why would he, why would he uh, begin this way? Well, I think in the historical context of the document, you know, here we are in the late 1960s, and there is um, a renewed uh, enthusiasm about the advances of science, which in the encyclical, you know, he, um, he addresses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can see actually also in uh, Gaudium et Spes, in the beginning of that document, right, there is, uh, there's all of this exuberance about um, advances in knowledge and technology in the world and all the good that could conceivably come from that. But some people were advancing a thesis here of uh, a parallel magisterium, right, which takes us back more or less, right, to the time of Galileo, right? And many people, you know, misunderstand the reason that Galileo was censured, right? It wasn't that it wasn't actually that he proposed a different thesis about how the, you know, the relationship between earth and sun, right? Right. Um, it, it was actually that he proposed this parallel magisterium, this idea that we could know something by uh, faith and know something by science, and the two could actually be contradictory to each other. So that science should have its own field of competency in which, faith, in which the uh, magisterium of the church would never intrude, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this idea that you could have um, exercises of reason that are fully competent, and yet they contradict one another, uh, is, is, is in fact a heretical position, right? And that position is rightly condemned. Well, so advancing to the late 20th century, we see people proposing that, um, once again, that science has its own field of competency And that's fine as far as it goes, but when we get to the point at which it proposes that uh, it's fully adequate to answer all questions, and that um, this question in front of us, contraception, is a matter of science and technology, and so the magisterium should stay out of it, right? Uh, That is, um, that's where we start to go off the rails. At the same time, you had theologians also proposing uh, a different kind of idea of a parallel magisterium in which theologians operated independently of the magisterium. Uh, and basically their job was to tell the magisterium what they should go about teaching. That's an oversimplification of the position, but uh, sure. but it, it, it does, I think, uh, capture some of the flavor of 
the tension. What Paul VI is establishing here is that, in fact, uh, once again, right, he's repeating the idea that there can be no real contradiction in truth. When God establishes the natural moral law, which is reflected in the natural order of things, uh, and thus, right, the natural order of things being the field of science and technology, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but when God establishes these things, it's a work of God, right? And thus it can't uh, contradict what's revealed by God in faith, given that the magisterium is God's competent authority in this world, right, to, um, to confirm what it is that he teaches human beings about himself and about themselves. Uh, then it must be the case that the magisterium is competent to make judgments on the natural moral law, which proceeds from the natural order of things. Yeah, and I also see it as, you know, kind of almost a kind of, even today, it, it's alive. It's kind of a dualistic or dualist view of the human person uh, wow. to where, you know, we either completely overemphasize uh, the body and at the at the consequence of the soul or vice versa you know so you I mean you know where you say well you know we can know all of these things by biology uh, thus reducing the human person to these mere biological terms and norms and so right. morality then gets reduced also to the biological whereas Pope Paul VI is saying you know that we need to look at the whole of the human person that we don't just take this one thing into account uh, right. as opposed to another yeah, well, that's really interesting, too, because, because uh, I remember, you know, it used to be very common to see protests. In fact, it was sort of the thing to protest about the Catholic Church for a very long time following, um, following Humani Vitae, right? So Humani Vitae is 1968, but even in the mm -hmm. late 80s, you still, you still routinely would see street protests against the Catholic Church. Uh, over this very issue, and I, I remember one in particular where I was in New York, and I, I, I went to a Catholic high school to listen to Cardinal O'Connor um, give, you know, sort of a state of Catholic education in the diocese address, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, this was a Catholic high school off the beaten path, and it was, it was a purely internal matter to the Catholic Church, right? It, it had nothing to do with any broad public policy or anything. It was just Catholic education, the state of the schools, how they're being financed and all this kind of junk. And outside the parking lot of this school, as I, as I drove into the parking lot, was this band of protesters, not very many, but, you know, maybe like 15 people holding signs. And, they, and the signs read, you ready for this? Yeah. Keep your rosaries out of our ovaries. <laughs> now, if you want to talk about reductionism, yeah. right? So this is people reducing themselves to uh, essentially one particular organ of their bodies, right? Yeah. And uh, and saying, you know, you're the, basically the church and its practices, right, and its piety have nothing to do with this organ of my body to which I've reduced myself. There's not much we can do to help you once you, you've, you've reduced yourself to, that, to, to just that level, right? I mean, how do you have a moral discussion with somebody at that point? One of the, one of the things I, I, I enjoy very much about this document is that he does, you know, he brings in this, you know, total vision of man. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's key to 
essentially all of the church's moral teaching is that uh, she she doesn't just take one thing into account when making a moral decision, and that's why you know when we look at the you know the the how how we make moral decisions, you know we don't just look at the intention, we don't just look at the means by which we bring about the end, and we just don't or or we just don't look at the circumstances. We look at all of those things, but you know even modern morality you know, it'll focus on one. Well, the intention was good. So therefore, you know, there was no crime or there was no, you know, nothing like that, you know, or the intention was bad, but the means weren't that bad. You know, so I mean, we get into all these different things, whereas the, the church is, you know, and I think she's probably the only uh, body that has had this consistent, not just a sexual ethic, but a consistent ethic that looks at every aspect, that it doesn't focus merely on one uh, or the other. Um, so one of the things that, that Pope Paul VI brings up here, which I think is kind of interesting, is he brings up this, uh, this idea of the principle of totality, um, that, that, it, that it, we really can't use this as a good measure for this issue of contraception. Uh, and the principle of totality being that uh, the, the parts are ordered towards the whole. And a lot of times this, this uh, principle totality was brought up with regards to like amputation or something like that. Wow. You know, the finger, uh, if there was a really bad infection in the finger, that it would be okay and it would be moral to uh, cut off the finger in order to save the body. And so this principle was brought up. Um, but he makes the point that it, it, it simply can't just be transferred over to every aspect and in particular uh, to the essential elements of the conjugal act. Um, what else? Why do you think he would bring this up here? Well, yeah, so if we, um, if we look at the context in which he, he mentions the principle of totality, mm -hmm. right, he says, um, could not be accepted that the intention to have a less prolific but more rationally planned family might transform an action which renders natural processes infertile into illicit and provident control of birth, right? So basically, the um, the the what he's talking about here is the the classical understanding of the constitution of a moral act, right? Mm -hmm. So so classically, when we think about um, when we think about a moral act, we think in um, in in Catholic moral teaching about the object, the intention, and the circumstances. Now, one way of thinking about this, right, is to think of it as basically a um uh basically a, an aristotelian metaphysic of substance transposed upon uh, a moral act and the reason you would do this now of course one would have to say this is this can only be analogous right to say um to talk this way but the point of transposing a, uh, an, Arist an Aristotelian uh, metaphysic of substance upon a moral act is precisely to make the point that the moral act is a real thing, right? That it has, okay. it has lasting uh, meaning and value, that it's not just a figment of the imagination, that it's not just something that disappears. To use the wording of, um, of Pope John Paul II, right? He says, he says that a, the human act, right? So a human act is always a moral act, okay? Mm -hmm. An act performed with knowledge and uh, free will. So um, he says the human act once performed does not disappear without a trace. He says that um, yeah. it remains 
in the person. So it, it remain it, it's a part of you, right? The, the, it, it changes, it affects who we are morally. It's part of our moral constitution. And so we, we treat it in Catholic moral teaching as if it were a kind of thing. So, um, and that's where that language really comes from. So in, in, this, in this language, the object is as the matter of the act, okay? So what is it concretely here and now that I mean to do? The intention is the form, analogously speaking, right, of the act, mm-hmm. the particular um, shape and, and meaning of it, right? Its purpose, or as the catechism puts it, you know, the end in view, the why behind the act. You know, and then, of course, the circumstances, right, are the sum total of what, you know, could be regarded as the accidental characteristics of the act, how, how big it is, right, how much, uh, the, the, um, the, how I go about doing it, right? So if you think of sort of the color, the shape, the texture of it, in Catholic moral teaching, both the object and the intention have to be good in order for the act to be considered good as a whole, right? So if, if either one is evil, then the act is evil. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Where the object is bad. Or, you know, to, to quote roughly, I don't know if this is an exact quote, uh, T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, right? Where there's the line that says something along, it's something like, um, then this, there is no greater treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason, right? So there you have an object that is, is good, but an evil intention, right? Yeah, here you have to have uh, you have to have both a, a good object and a good intention. And what Paul VI is recognizing is that often you have actually a good intention that motivates people to use contraception, mm-hmm. but the object remains evil. The what it is that you're doing here and now remains an evil thing. And the principle yeah, and of totality is about a different question than that. Yeah, and he addresses this in uh, paragraph sixteen, which we'll get to in a sec, talking about the two cases of. I want uh, trying to be a responsible parent and choosing an illicit means and trying to uh, be selfish and choosing a licit means. Uh, And he brings that up later in paragraph 16, which we'll get to in a sec. But before that, let's look at paragraph 13. He provides a um, kind of a, a, an interesting argument for the, uh, the banning of artificial contraception, uh, particularly after talking about uh, the two inseparable aspects of union and procreation. Uh, he gets into the idea of faithfulness to God's design. What does he? What does he say there? It's interesting because that builds upon what he had said in in paragraph eleven, where he goes through um, really four aspects of responsibility, right? Sure. Which are not to be considered parallel, but which in fact are are sort of uh, in order of importance, given backwards, right? So he gives them an inverse order of importance, beginning with number four, which is responsibility to the biological processes, the responsibility to the innate drives, which he considers more important than the biological processes, right? So basically the the desire to share love and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And then the physical, economic, psychological, social conditions of responsible parenthood. So this is, you know, taking into consideration what we owe to our children, whether we can support our family, that kind of stuff, right? Am I, can I, can I handle more children? Which is a, you know, he considers a legitimate kind of question. But sure. number one is responsibility to God. And that's what in this list we need to take, we need to keep in mind. 
So faithfulness to God's design in paragraph 13, what's interesting there is that in God's design, there is this, um, there is this sort of uh, dual aspect of the sexual act, okay? Now, some people would regard Paul VI here as actually um, deviating somewhat from a more traditional view, okay? Now, okay. I, I don't accept that, and I'm going to correct it in a minute, right? So what, what people would say is that prior to this, we see, the, um, we see these two aspects of the sexual act, the procreative and the unitive. So the, you know, the aspect of the sexual act is generative of children, right? The sexual act is to produce children, teleologically mm-hmm. speaking, at the biological level. And then secondarily, and that's the key, is we're going to understand what this word secondarily means. All right, so secondarily, then, to also cement the relationship between the husband and wife and increase affection between them, right? That kind of thing. So people have uh, widely understood this term secondarily to imply of, of secondary importance, right? So of, of lesser importance. But in fact, right, if we think about... Um, we think about the Latin idea of something being secundum quid, mm-hmm. right? It, it means following from, and it does not imply being of secondary importance. Rather, it simply implies a causal relationship. Right. So the, um, so it's a relationship of dependency. The, the importance of the unitive dimension can be as significant as the biological, but not separable from it, right? Because it's dependent upon it. Now, if that's the case, and that's the way I think we ought to interpret the tradition on this point, it seems to me to be the way that Paul VI interprets the tradition on this point. When we understand that, right, we can begin to see the logic at work in in paragraph 13 of this encyclical, where he says that we would never propose that we separate the biological aspect of of the sexual act from the unitive aspect of the sexual act in such a way as to disregard the wishes and welfare of the other. If a husband were to um, sort of, you know, impose himself on his wife, right, without any care for her physical condition or mental condition or anything of the sort, right, but simply in the interest of procreating children, we would never regard this as as morally, uh, as a morally licit thing to do, right? So sure. this, is, this is actually bad behavior. But if that's the case, then he he says, well, doesn't the logic then follow, right? That if we were to impose the unitive aspect, take the unitive aspect of the act, while separating off the biological, right? The very thing on which the unitive depends, right? Uh, then um, wouldn't we also be doing something immoral, right? And his answer is his his answer is of course. Now here's what's really at stake in this, right? No one wants to say that we can um, that it's not wrong to disregard consent, right? No one really wants no one really wants to say that. So either we're going to say that sort of you know consent is not consent is something that could make the act. So, you know, this is if we separate the two, right? Right, right. Is a sufficient condition to make the act laudable, 
right? That's the position of those who would advance contraception, right? Mm -hmm. Even in the absence of the biological, which of course would open the door to the, you know, gender theory and same-sex marriage and all this other stuff that we see today because we've separated the biological aspect from the, from the dimension of consent, right? Well, that's not something we can do within the church, but the alternative then, right, is, well, can we, if we can separate the two, then it would also be the case that the merely biological would suffice. Uh, <laughs> and we don't, and, you know, we'd, we would have, we could disregard consent. Well, we're not prepared to say that, right? So from that <laughs> point of view, we, we, can't, we can't say either of those two things, which means that the only thing left for us to say is that the two aspects of the sexual act can never be separated morally. It's the right. only, I, only available Catholic option, it seems. Yeah, and so I think when you, look at the, when you look at the aspect of when you were talking about secondary as, not secondary as in lesser importance or anything like that, but secondary as flowing from, Right. That if a couple were to render the conjugal act infertile mm-hmm. by destroying that aspect of it, it makes sense that it would destroy then the consequences of it, namely the unitive aspect as well as flowing from it. That if were they if the if they were to, to render that, that conjugal act infertile, that the unitive aspect would also be uh, de- at least harmed, if not destroyed altogether, you know, if it flows from this, from this original act. And so, I mean, you right. could even say that, you know, so, so a couple that wishes to respect one without the other, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's an absurdity. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some people would say that they have, you know, that in their own subjective experience, they, you know, they feel, they feel that they're perfectly united, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and while they use contraception. But I would argue that, um, that they're mistaken. And you could say, well, how can you say that somebody's mistaken about their own experience? Look, if you've been alive for a while, you realize we can often be mistaken about our own experience. We, we, we're mistaken about it all the time, right? Because from a certain point of view, like remember when you were a, ch- a child or an adolescent, right? Mm-hmm. You had certain experiences and you thought that that experience was completely sufficient to tell you everything you needed to know about the issue. And you discovered later when you had more experience, when yeah. certain other aspects of life were opened up to you, that um, no, you were actually a fool, right? That you did not have a sufficient frame of reference from which to draw the conclusions that you were drawing, that you were drawing erroneous conclusions when you were a teenager, right? And you were drawing them based upon your experience, but your experience was unfortunately quite limited. What I would say to somebody who says, you know, that they feel they're perfectly united. Uh, even though they're using contraception, is that, you know, if we really look closely at the phenomenological, um, the phenomenological aspect here, right? If we look, if we do a phenomenological analysis of the conjugal act, there, there is a sort of um, surrender that occurs, right, in the face of the question mark about the future about what could happen, what we could discover tomorrow or next week or a month from now that, that changes the course of our lives uh, in ways that, that we hadn't explicitly planned upon or expected, uh, that, that we're open to that precisely uh, in and through our experience, right, con- in, in the spontaneity of the sexual act of our pursuit of one another. So that 
the choice to be one with the other comes with an openness to receiving the future in whatever shape it takes mm -hmm. from this point forward. The act of becoming one with the other is, so, is of such momentous importance in this moment, right? That it's accepted along with any unpredictable consequences uh, that, it may, that it may entail. That's a different kind of thing, it seems to me, than facing a future in which we place brackets around it. There can be a real distinction between reality and your feelings. Right. Your, your feelings are not the measure of reality. That, uh, and, and, the thing, and the thing is, is this isn't just a Catholic thing. I mean, you look at uh, sociology, psychology, and they'll say, you know, you may think this, this, this one act or this one thing is somewhat harmless, but it can later on have all of these effects uh, in your life that could be that could potentially be negative, uh, even if they don't feel that way. You know, they can they can lead to these things that can truly be harmful to you as a real human person. Uh, so even if the person does feel close to the person while engaging in you know contraceptive sex, the unity the 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 union aspect is is simply a feeling. Uh, and even just a, a facade that really has no basis in reality. Again, because, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about, the fidelity to God's design, that there's a design that we are not responsible for. And that, and, and this goes, you know, kind of to the, the, the main argument against artificial contraception, is that the design of the act must always be respected. If you cannot respect the act, you should not... Uh, enter into the act. And in that way, you show the act reverence. You show the act respect, saying, you know, I respect the design of this, of this conjugal act so much that if I'm not in a position where I can uh, uh, accept or experience the consequences from it, I should not engage in this act. And right. that's, that, that's, a, that's actually a sign of faith, a sign of fidelity, a sign of respect. As, a, as opposed to, you know, saying, well, thank you for this gift. Uh, now get the hell out. Right. You know, there's... So, yeah, and I think that, um, actually, this is an area where, you know, a, a, um, an appreciation of, you know, the sort of daily ritual aspect of covenantal life mm -hmm. is, is really a, a help. So very often, you know, Christians, even those among us where we practice a great deal of ritual in our daily lives, you know, we'll, we'll often, like Catholics, you know, we'll often look at Judaism and uh, see the ritual aspect of Judaism, the, the, the daily ablutions, you know, the, the various prayers they say, you know, with an, uh, an, Orthodox, um, an Orthodox Jew, right? The seriously observant Jews, you know, they won't walk out the door without saying a particular prayer. But, but we see actually that Catholics often have a holy water font at the door of their houses, right? So it's a similar kind of thing. What is it all about? Well, St. Paul, you know, he says that um, your whole life should be a prayer, right? Pray without ceasing. And this is really what it's about, right? If you think about this, this uh, the ritualization of one's life from top to bottom, from the, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, no matter what you do, putting on your clothes, eating your food, going out the door, all of it is framed in a ritual context. Now, we, we as Catholics may not 
live quite that way, right? But we do uh, still retain some of those aspects in Catholicism. We should understand that the whole point is that we can't do anything without thinking about God, right? That there's nothing that we, there's no moment in our lives where we make any decision at all without turning our mind to our relationship to God. That, that's really what's behind those rituals, right? And here I think when it comes to this particular act, we have to ask ourselves, am I bringing God into account? Am I, am I engaging in this act in dialogue with God? Or am I relying entirely upon human agency, right? That seems to me the, to be a, an important question. Yeah, and, and, and I think this gets played out, uh, and this was what we had mentioned earlier in paragraph 16, where uh, we talk about this idea that I can't, and people will bring this up often with uh, natural family planning, saying, well, aren't you just uh, being selfish in a different way? Uh, Uh or saying, well, you know, you can have, uh, uh, it's the same as contraception. So, I mean, what's the big deal? Yeah. Uh, You know, you're avoiding it in this way. And I think, you know, kind of what what you just said really gets, really gets to the heart of it that, you know, so say somebody practices natural family planning for absolutely selfish reasons. Uh Uh, What, what, what they're kind of going to be culpable for is, being selfish and not bringing God into the conversation of their of of planning their family. What they're not going to be culpable for is taking an act, a gift from God, and distorting it and rendering it uh, fruitless. Um, and I think those are those are two completely different uh, sins. So I mean, while they both may be sinful, uh, whether whether you you are for good reason, trying to avoid a pregnancy, and so you uh, you use means of artificial contraception, or if you just do, are selfishly acting but are using natural family planning, that the two are completely different, and they 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 can never they are completely different in the very nature of their act, but also in the nature of their sin. I mean, it's one thing to be selfish and not bring God into the conversation of your of the planning of your family, and it's another thing to uh, essentially kick God out to, to render something that he has made fruitful, completely infertile. And I think the two are just different in nature. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, Paul VI says, right, it cannot be denied that in each case, that is to say people use contraception uh, for, and, and here, let's just grant the, you know, the responsible reasons, right? Sure. The good reasons. Okay. So, and, and people who don't, people who, um, who rely on natural family planning, right? It cannot be denied that in each case, the married couple, for acceptable reasons, are both perfectly clear in their intention to avoid children mm-hmm. and wish to make sure that none will result. However, right, it comes down then to the, to the means that they're using. But one of the things here that we have to take into consideration is the acceptable reasons. So this concept comes up a few times in the encyclical, and um, often to be fair, you know, it's translated badly. So we, sometimes we, we see um, Paul VI says at some point for serious reasons, uh, well-grounded reasons, serious reasons. Sometimes you see people translate that as grave reasons. Mm-hmm. It's important to, to understand that that's, um, there, there's a difference between grave and serious, okay, in, in Catholic thinking. 
So grave reasons literally has to do with life or death. But Paul VI isn't actually talking about that. Serious reasons. So this would be, now, one of the things is, is, you remember I said, you know, uh, people would protest saying, keep your rosaries out of our ovaries, right? Yeah. And, and, they, off, and they, they criticize the church for inserting itself in, into the bedroom or something, right? Getting into the nitty gritty of our daily lives and decision making. And yet, they'll ask, well, what are serious reasons? It never says in the document what they are. Yeah, you know why? It's because the church says that if if, if you have a well-formed, well-formed, that's the key, um, well-formed Christian conscience, you can employ your prudential reasoning to determine what in your concrete case would constitute uh, serious reasons you know, with, with a certain amount of guidance, but we don't have to tell you in each and every case, we don't have to come up with a catalog. We could look up, is this a serious reason or not? You got to make that decision between you and your wife, right? But can we, can we rule certain things out? Can we, can we talk about patterns? Yeah, I think so. Right. So serious reasons, he, he kind of gives more or less the framework within which we can make um, that kind of a judgment. Right. Because he mentions economic circumstances, family dynamics, this kind of stuff, psychological conditions. So what what would these be? You know, let's say that you were, that you have an autistic child, okay? And you're going through a very difficult time with this particular autistic child at this stage in his life. And and you're getting very, very little sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And you think, well, I can't really handle it at this moment. Is that a serious reason? Well, it's not a life or death reason, right? It's not a grave reason. But is it a serious reason? Yeah, probably, right? I think it's it's within your um, it's within the spirit of of um, humane vitae to to decide to space births at that time, right? Or let's say that you know you just lost your job and you don't know what uh, where you're going to have to move to if you get a new job, right? It's a very difficult time right now. Things are up in the air, and we're afraid of uh, how we're going to just handle being pregnant and having a. We don't have health insurance right now, that kind of thing, right? What are we going to do? Yeah, that would be a serious reason, I think. And I think I think also when when people talk about you know serious reasons and things like that, it's always you know for for whatever reason and always kind of these like indefinite periods. Uh, as opposed to where the, 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 the real kind of application of like this discernment process is at this moment, at this time, do we have a serious reason? And you know what? At that moment, you can have a serious reason that could be alleviated the next day. You know, right. so this, this, this discernment process, you know, actually, you know, it's not this kind of indefinite thing that it is, you know, a, a, a weekly, a monthly thing that couples look at, you know, it's not, right. just, it's not, because you know, sometimes it gets thrown up into the air of, you know, well, we decided it when we were engaged that we were only going to have three kids, you know, that's, you know, see, that would be, that would be illegitimate. Yeah. But, you know, but, but why, why be so, you know, you know, or we think in very definitive terms for whatever reason uh-huh. when it comes to, you know, children spacing that, you know, we're going to space them each two years apart. Well, you know, that's, that's quite yeah, definitive. You're talking about, you know, you know, 12, 15, 20 years of, of this ability to have children. So, I mean, you know, the, the actual practicalities of a lot of this stuff is very much 
on a much smaller scale when it comes to time and uh, kind of. Uh, in most cases, of course, there are those cases in which, you know, sometimes grave, properly grave reasons emerge, right? And someone is like, right. well, you know, if she, if, we, uh, if she gets pregnant again, she could die, right? Yeah. Well, Answer. that would be a time when you're talking about um, for, for the indefinite future, unless some medical sure. technology, you know, unless there's some, some, some way to fix the problem emerges, right? You're, you're going to have to make use of infecting periods. So that would be, I mean, that would be a case, right? Where you'd have a truly grave reason and it would be, and it would probably be perpetual in that, in that right. instance. But for the most part, yeah, yeah, they're intermittent. So what would be yeah. not serious? We should talk about that. Yeah, that's what, a, yeah, what that's wouldn't a, qualify, right? Um, I would say, you know, that because you you've been meaning to upgrade your TV, uh, and right now, you know, if you just can't, pregnancy isn't in the cards because it that would take your TV money away. I mean, I I think that's probably not a serious reason. Yeah. You know, there's another, there's an interesting aspect of this whole, this whole thing, which is probably worthy of its own discussion. Sure. So maybe this isn't the time to have it, but I'll throw it on the table. One, one way in which the move made uh, in articulating this, this, um, the moral liceity of making use of infecund periods, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an aspect of it, which, which we don't, um, we don't adequately appreciate, right? Which is that during the fecund periods, mm-hmm. you're resisting the natural urge to engage in the conjugal, uh, the conjugal experience, right? Which means that it's precisely that move that you have to justify. The move, in other words, the move you have to justify, right, is not engaging in the conjugal act at this particular time. That's a that's a very that's an interesting thing, right? Because that, that I think, is actually a, a, a significant development. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, dogmatically. But that's, probably, that's probably a discussion for another time. Yeah, that's interesting to... to... Let's look at paragraph... Or we'll have to... Let's, let's touch on paragraph 17, because that's where he gets into those big... Uh, the, the grave consequences right. um, of this, which a lot of people have hearkened to over the years. And we have seen come to fruition um, uh, of what what Pope Paul VI kind of says, what will happen to uh, particular um, to our culture with regards to its uh, just widespread use of artificial yeah. birth control. Well, I think he gets right to the logic of it, right? In the in the very first, um, well, I should say here here here's the here's the place where he gets to the logic of. It. He says. He says, uh, consequently, unless we are willing that the responsibility of procreating life should be left to the arbitrary decision of men, <laughs> we must accept that there are certain limits beyond which it is wrong to go to the power of man over his own body and its natural functions. Limits, let it be said, which no one, whether as a private individual or as a public authority, can lawfully exceed. Mm. Okay, so. So this is what it comes down to. Either, either the responsibility of procreating life is arbitrary, that we simply choose, right, one way or another, or there are limits, okay? Mm-hmm. Either our choice here is unlimited or it's limited. And, and that clearly, clearly, right, that, that um, 
that binary is is absolute, right? Either it's limited or it isn't. Now, if it's not limited, if it's not limited, right, then everything goes here, right? E everything that we see in contemporary in the contemporary um, circumstances, even to the point where we're starting to genetically design our children, right? So fertility clinics where we go in and 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 you get a a woman becomes pregnant by a donor she's never seen without the intervention of the sexual act at all right yeah uh, where it's perfectly it's seen as perfectly legitimate to um to have to have children irrespective of marriage irrespective of relationships where we can genetically design children where we can we can construct embryos in a petri dish um and 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 you know have children in a same-sex marriage or something like that all these things that people are aspiring to do today that that's all fine if if the whole thing is governed entirely by the human will and there are no limits outside the human will but if there yeah. are then we need to discern what those limits are and respect them yeah and he makes that very clear you know either and again Going back to that, uh, the, the paragraph that we just spoke about, either there is a plan for uh, a plan determined by God for the sexual act for human sexuality, or as he says here in paragraph 16, it is simply left to the arbitrary will of men. Right. Uh, you know, which we're, we're living in right now, going through all those things that you said. Like it, it's either or, there's no this. Well, there's a general design that may or may not have to be. No, it's it's one or the other. It's it, it cannot it cannot be uh, a third thing with regards to this. That it is either there is this design by God which must res be respected, or the whole thing of it is left to the arbitrary will of man, which I think is a good way to put it. Right. So, and 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 that's what's at the heart then of all of the the unraveling of sexual morality that we've seen with interestingly enough, you know, all of the other social consequences and yeah. Paul VI doesn't get into a great deal of detail. You know, he paints with very broad strokes, but if you follow the broad strokes, you can easily fit uh, into the architecture that he constructs virtually all of our social problems. You know, if you look at things like poverty and antisocial behavior uh, violent crime, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, you can see a very strong connection between those things and the, de and the, the deconstruction of the traditional family unit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, right, which Paul VI very clearly associates as being a consequence of the contraceptive culture. People sometimes put out there with regards to humanae vitae is, you know, the, again, just one more example is the church is against science. The church is against scientific advancement, particularly when it comes to uh, uh, the human body, the human person. Um, but Pope Paul VI, he addresses uh, uh, people who are in the scientific field, um, particularly in uh, paragraph 24, which, you know, I think is one thing that, that is interesting that, you know, he may, he makes those predictions of negative consequence, which we're living in today, but he also calls people of science uh, to something which I think we've seen uh, the fruit of. And what, what is that there uh, in paragraph 24 when he's talking to the, the men of science? What is, 
What is he calling for in that paragraph? Uh, our next appeal is the men of science. These can considerably advance the welfare of marriage and, and the family, and also uh, peace of conscience, if by pooling their efforts, they strive to elucidate more thoroughly the conditions favorable to a proper regulation births. And there he's quoting from uh, Gaudium et Spes, right? Mm -hmm. It is supremely desirable, he goes on to say, and this was the mind of Pius XII, that medical science should, by the study of natural rhythms, succeed in determining a sufficiently secure basis for the chaste limitation of offspring. So what's really interesting is that this did not exist at the time, but um, it does now, which is the, if you go to a drugstore, you can find uh, kits in which a woman can determine whether she is um, fertile at a particular time, right? So uh, she could determine whether she's ovulating. And the purpose of those kits, their primary marketing uh, value, right, is mm -hmm. for women who wish to become pregnant. So it's interesting, you know, in our, in our culture, we, we, we love contraception, and yet um, we, we still recognize that women do occasionally actually want to have children. So we have these kits to help them, uh, to help them do that. Um, and typically, you know, it's, it's later in life when they become, they start to become less um, fertile, I suppose. That's, that's not all the time. I mean, I'm not, you know, trying to make somebody feel bad if they have a, a medical condition or something that makes pregnancy difficult for them. We know that there are plenty of women in that position. But, but one, of the, one of the factors that we tend to see, right, is that women put off pregnancy uh, until they're, they're in their late 30s and they find that they have a difficult time conceiving children. So they buy these kits, right, that help them determine when they're fertile and, uh, and they can become pregnant that way. But one of the other uses uh, for such a kit would be to determine uh, when one is not fertile, right? right. Um, and according to, according to Paul VI, that would be a perfectly licit use of that, uh, of that kit, okay? And that this, this is precisely the technology he's calling on scientists to develop so that people could do exactly the thing that he's talking about in a much more convenient way, right? So, you know, the typical way that's still taught uh, is, is charting temperature and, uh, and um, you know, um, mucus. So like it's, and, you know, date of ovulation and all this, we chart that stuff and it's a hugely laborious thing to do. There are shorthand approaches, which are somewhat less reliable, but still not, not terrible. But this particular means is, is a means that Paul VI is actually calling for in 1968. And, and so, you know, there's, I think if someone is, if someone is in a position where they're saying particularly, particularly, let's say if, if it's for grave reasons, if there's an awful lot at stake, Right then, then, then yeah. It seems to me Paul the Sixth is saying this is a perfectly legitimate thing to do to use uh, this this kind of a kit which scientists have um, developed now to determine that at this moment I'm fertile and thus should not have sexual intercourse. Um, and, I, and I love one of the to uh, to kind of conclude on I, one of the things I think that is so appropriate today. Uh, in this document is in paragraph 26, when he talks about 
the particularly laity, obviously, uh, but the apostolate in the homes, uh, where he says, among the fruits which ripen forth from a generous effort of fidelity to the divine law, one of the most precious gifts is that married couples themselves not infrequently feel the desire to communicate their experience to others. Thus there comes to be included in the vast pattern of the vocation of the laity a new and most noteworthy form of the apostolate of like toward like. It is married couples themselves who will become apostles and guides to other married couples. And I think that's a, a, a beautiful way uh, to end this podcast, that it is a call. To that, I will make the note that Pope Paul VI does in the encyclical by calling on bishops and priests uh, to not only uh, give their fidelity to this teaching, but also to their pastoral action. Um, but I like that he makes the point that it is married couples in their witness that is going to 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 bring this teaching both to light, but also to to understanding to to those people around us. And so I just want to thank uh, Dr. Bruce Kelly for being with us again today, and I want to thank you for listening. Please join us. Check us out at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Until next time, God bless.